Welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Lee. Our guest today, Willie Donick of 102.5 The Game. This episode was recorded before Vanderbilt's win over LSU, which we will get to in the news. This show presented by the Well Coffee House, which turns coffee into water. The Well is a coffee house with a mission to bring clean water to the world. To date, over 30 communities across the globe have access to safe water, health, and hope. You too can make an impact by visiting a Well Coffee House location today. There are four of them in the Nashville area, Brentwood Green Hills, downtown, and Bellevue. You can get more information at wellcoffeehouse.org. The Well Coffee House, where coffee changes lives. We thank our co-presenting sponsor, Wellspire, Nashville's Learning and Development center which is located in the gulch our news is presented by sutherland and belk a local injury law firm committed to helping those injured in accidents if you or someone you know has been in a wreck or other accident reach out to sutherland and belk see what your rights are you can find their contact info online at sbinjurylaw.com well vanderbilt finally snaps a two-year streak of regular season southeastern conference losses with a great win over lsu at memorial gym on Wednesday night, the Commodores beat the 18th-ranked Tigers by a score of 99-90. Saban Lee had 33 points. Max Evans had 31. Both were career highs. Willie appears on our guest line, which is brought to you by Bowling Branch, started by Vanderbilt graduate Scott and Missy Tannen. Had no clue what I was missing until I got Bowling Branch sheets. They are fair trade certified, meaning they are made by men and women who were treated and paid fairly. Try them for a month. You can return them for free, but you won't want to. Once you get the sheets, try the mattress. That was voted the best mattress of 2018. Go to bowlandbranch.com. That is spelled B-O-L-L. Enter the promo code VANDY and get $50 off your first set of sheets. Willie Donick joins us now. He is of 102.5 The Game. He is the play-by-play man for the Nashville Predators. He's a Vanderbilt alumnus. He played on the baseball and basketball teams. He is the host of his own show on 102.5. Willie, have I missed anything? I guess parent, father, those kind of things. What else is in there? <laughs> Who knows? Uh, uh, a guy that can soldier through the Canadian weather uh, in the wintertime. I guess we'll put that on the list because I'm up in Calgary right now. I picked a great week to come up to Canada for a, uh, for a road trip. Huh? Not anything going on back home? <laughs> I don't know. I'm I'm too tired to know. Uh, fantasy baseball aficionado. I missed that one. That that's well, that's one more. Yeah, yeah. We we definitely we share the the um, the distinction of having the true rotisserie uh, baseball, not just the fantasy where you draft the guys, but the true categorical thing. That's uh, and National League only, where you really have to know the personnel. That's uh, that's a pretty good stuff. That's a rare that's a rare club. I think. Yes. The the we were in it when we got stats once a week by mail and you know went to school barefoot in the snow uphill kind of thing <laughs> <laughs> but seriously let's talk the story that everybody's talking about Malcolm Turner um what's your perception on the whole thing and how's this gone over in talk radio cuz i know that I was too busy to listen to any radio other than the the radio I was doing yesterday, but I'm guessing that was a very hot topic on your station. Well, I I, I think it was. I uh, I was up in Winnipeg at the time because the the Predators were playing, so I was not a part of our show yesterday on 102.5 The Game. I do know that yesterday and today, 
they, they've gotten pretty heavily into it. Um, you know, I, I think it, there, there's a couple of audiences here. You know, we're, we're talking about a Vanderbilt podcast right now. And so for a Vanderbilt follower, I think the perception, the outlook might be different than the perception of just a sports fan in Nashville who is not connected to Vanderbilt. You know, one, one will have one view, one will have a different view. And both are important for sure for how the for how the whole athletic program goes forward. Let's say the banner was hired. Um, I have to admit, I raised my eyebrows and I wondered, okay, this is outside the box. I guess this could be a really good thing, but I wondered from the moment he was hired. How is this going to work? He has no connection to Vanderbilt. He has no connection to college athletics. And so this is really diving into the deep end without really knowing exactly what you're going to be surrounding yourself with. So my first thought just in the big picture was, and you tell me, Chris, if you, if you think this is, this is just turned out to be true in, in hindsight is that he probably just got into a job that, he had maybe one vision of what it was going to be like. And a year later, later, it was just nothing like he thought he was running into some, some walls and how he wanted to do things. The school was probably not on board a hundred percent with what he was doing all the time. And it just wasn't a good fit. Is, is that really maybe from a 10,000 foot view, one way to look at it? Maybe the question that I have is I still don't know how committed the school was or wasn't to whatever he wanted to do. No, I do know this. I have real evidence that his goals were pretty high. But on the other hand, I can set goals that are high. And this is just me editorializing and thinking out loud, okay? I can say I want to run facilities comps to to Michigan and Texas A&M, which I know for a fact is what he did. But A, I may not either be able to deliver or B, there's not a willingness on the other end to do that. And that's where I kind of get lost in the answers because I don't know if he truly had the go-ahead to do those sorts of things, but he couldn't deliver. And when you hear a lot, and I'm sure you heard this too, he's in over his head. Um, whether fair or not, it seems like maybe that's a piece of the puzzle. The other piece is... I wonder when you have goodwill with the school and you're trusted and you're seen as a responsible steward, the asks that you can get and the answers to those asks may be different than if you're seen as squandering money and you're sideways with people and those sorts of things. Man, that sounds like a really evasive answer, but I just would like to know if the whole dynamic played out differently and he was capable of delivering huge things, what the answers would have been. And that's what I still don't know. Well, he was hired by Chancellor Zeppos, who was on his way out. So to me, that that was the day that he was hired, something I thought about a lot is, okay, the guy that's hiring him is on the way out. What's the next chance they're going to look like? How is that going to affect some of what you're talking about? And that is building the relationships to get some of the things done you want. Um, you know, I, I could go in, let's say I got the coach 
the coaching job at X University for basketball. And I went in, I, I went in and the first year just said, hey, I, I need everybody to, to get in academically. I want um, no academic standards. Uh, just trust me. They'll, they'll get the work done. I'll put them in study hall, et cetera. Well, how do you do that and get the trust of the people in the first year? You know, I think you have to sort of build those relationships. So let's go back to your reference of Malcolm Turner thinking big. We, we heard for a year about the big vision, right? Let's, instead of doing less with more or doing more with less, let's do more with more. Well, that's great, but it, it was going to take time right? Especially for him who has not been connected with Vanderbilt in any way, shape or form to pull that off in a short amount of time. So if that was his vision, that's great, but it was going to take time to build that vision. So if he, if he bailed based on that, then he didn't give it a whole lot of time. And, and maybe from the other end, they weren't liking what they saw uh, for him to be the guy they want to invest in. So I, I think it comes down to a lot of relationship building and that is one thing I learned a, a lot in the year with Malcolm Turner is that he wasn't really making a lot of connections around town, at least the people that I deal with, with, with the coaches that I know, the media. The, there, there was not a whole lot of bonding and really building it from the inside out. It was thinking big, and then all of a sudden, like a, like a comet shooting through the stars. Yeah, and my apologies, Willie. I lost you there for just a second. But there are two things that that kind of stand out. And first of all, the phrase bull in a china shop came up this week. Don't know how fair that is, but that was perception. And on one hand, I go, I don't know if that's exactly what they needed or exactly what they didn't need because Vanderbilt is such a complicated animal. Well, it is. It's, it's, I think the, it's the most unique job in the Southeastern conference for sure. Um, it's one of the more unique jobs and a lot of people, and let's go back to the two perceptions from the outside. They don't get that. They, they say, well, you're getting $45 million a year from the SEC. You're not committed. All of this stuff. But let's assess the damage here for, for just a moment, right? Because the, the perception from the outside right now is, is it's total chaos. We have no idea what's going on, what's next for Vanderbilt, et cetera. If you take a look, the, the, most, of the, most of the teams within the athletic program are actually doing very, very well. It's the ones, and baseball, of course, would be the headline of that. But then you have the golf programs, the tennis programs, the women's soccer program. Lacrosse is a, is a quality program. Of course, there's bowling. It's the basketball and the football that have not really been clicking here for, for a while, even though football, we've discussed backwards and forwards, Chris. If you look at the last 10, 12 years, relatively, it's had a lot more success than it's had in the last 50 or 70 years when you get down to it. Um, so the damage is not as bad as maybe it seems from, from a perspective uh, like that. It's just, you've got to get the right person, I think to, to build relationships with the, with the coaches and build it from the inside out. And that's where I think Malcolm Turner failed to do. He didn't connect with the people he needed to connect with. And I think regardless of what his vision was going to be, 
uh, he was never really going to get any traction. Well, and everything you just said right there is another reason that I think Candace Story Lee, who's the interim AD, is going to be their full-time AD. And this is just opinion based on nothing else, but I just know how that place works. And I would be very surprised if there was actually a job search for this. And I think what will happen is this matter will just kind of slip off into the oblivion. People will be preoccupied with baseball or whatever, and then one day there will be a press release that comes out and says, uh, we've got confidence in her and she'll be the new AD. I would bet money that's how it goes down. Well, I, I think I think you're I my my gut feeling tells me that you're right. And I I think Candace has has got the ability because she's been there for so long. She knows the the university inside and out. She knows all the coaches. She she has a relationship with the right people that she starts off with a really, really good foundation. And I think the, the next step for her will be to take the big challenges of, you know, the, the challenges that have really been there for the last, let's say, five to ten athletic directors. And so only time will tell whether she can make some inroads on, on getting Vanderbilt to the next step, you know, getting those huge financial commitments from donors, from, you know, from the commitment from Kirkland Hall for the financial resources that you need, all of those things. But I think when you have the foundation, let's take the, well, what is the most important thing for any athletic director? The foundation is great relationships with your coaches and relationships with the university in the, and the respect of all, all the athletes. I think Candace Story Lee has all of those things coming in. It's, she's already got that. So now she's got to build on that. And then the next level is all the, the big financial things that, that are really the ones that people watch from the outside. Yeah, and that's all true. I think that I've heard from enough people inside baseball and basketball programs at various times to know that she's well thought of. I think that is one of her bigger skills. I think she's got she's seen as an advocate on the student side uh, by the athletes. I think that's why some of the tweets that came out yesterday. So I think she's got that perception covered. Uh, and I, I know people inside the AD that think highly of her too. Uh, so I think that's another reason that that she'll get the job. I think that relationships got damaged. I think that that is where she will get plugged in to repair those. And that's why. But on the other hand, and I keep saying this to people, I, and none of this is to be critical of her. Um, she's kind of in the middle of this too. and. Vanderbilt is, if it's anything, it's a reactionary institution. And here's what I mean by this, okay? You look at when Kevin Stallings was fired. It was the personal relationships and the the verbal abuse and stuff like that that kind of got Kevin in trouble and the lack of closer relationships. And so they went the other way. They said, all right, we're going to go bring in Bryce Drew, who was as opposite from that as you can get. And that came with its own downside as we were starting to find out this time last year. So they went and hired Stackhouse, who is, and Bryce also put a lot of his faith in recruiting. So they went and hired Jerry, who I wouldn't characterize as Kevin, but he's a little bit more of a 
a stern guy. I don't know if that's fair, but but more so than Bryce was. His bread is buttered in player development. Okay, so you have the history of whatever they get rid of with basketball, they do the other thing. They did the same thing with um, with Franklin. Franklin was a little bit more of an envelope pusher than the previous staff. Then they got sick of that. They went to Mason, who's not been that at all. AD, you go back and look at things and uh, they put David in that spot for a while or for 15 years or whatever it was, and then they decide we want to get a little bit more aggressive and bring somebody in from the outside and push the envelope. And then that didn't work. Uh, in fact, it probably went the other way. And I bet you, again, Candace is the exact opposite in a lot of ways of everything Malcolm was. And I just I look at the whole picture, and that's just kind of how Vanderbilt does things. It reacts to whatever went wrong the last, and that very much shapes to the decision that is made next, which in a lot of ways are good, but in a lot of ways it also shows you they never really have a plan or direction. They just kind of react to the last thing that's happened, and that's how they move forward. Well, you said a lot of it. You threw a lot of examples out there. I, I would say that, you know, as you know, putting it in broad terms, every every coach has got their own style. So the coaches, to me, uh, are a little separate. It, one coach can be a little bit more of let's say the player's coach, another one could be more of a disciplinarian. Both could be effective, but they have to be allowed to, to have their own style, uh, style to, to succeed. Uh, the athletic director is a different, uh, to me, this is, this is coming back to the fundamental thing. I mean, we, we know the late David Williams would have liked to have been succeeded by Candace Story Lee. That's who he wanted, I think, to succeed him. They went with the outside the box choice of, of Malcolm Turner, which was completely out of left field. And we know now that in retrospect, it was, it was a gamble that they got burned on for whatever the reason. So now Candace story Lee gets her chance. And I think it will be important for her as she takes the reins here. Cause I, I cause as we said, I think she's got an excellent foundation internally to work with. I think she's got the respect of the coaches she has a great bond with, with the student-athletes. She's been around for a long, long time. I don't know specifically her connections to Kirkland Hall, which are essential, but I think she's got – she certainly has a lot of built a lot of relationships that she's starting off on. She's met a lot of people over there. She knows a lot of people there. I think the next step for her will be from a PR standpoint, you know, to get out and sort of show everybody that she's the leader. Right. Get, she's going to have to do some talk show stuff, some TV stuff. And I think it would be good for her to have, you know, maybe a PR person or two helping her, uh, you know, get out there and, and build that image that will be very, very important in Nashville uh, to start with, you know, and then beyond that. Right. Right. Uh, as she starts to get into things like when the time comes to hire another coach somewhere, you know, to have the you know, have the unmistakable label of this is our leader, right? This is the Vanderbilt athletic director. And this is, this is the person that's going to lead us forward. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think she'll do well at that. I think she's very pleasant. She's very personable. She always smiles. So I think from the media standpoint, and look, the bar was set pretty disastrously low (laughs) by her predecessor, but yeah, I do think that's another box that she will check. You know her, right? I know her. She's very capable of that. But I think the, the, the Nashville sports world doesn't know her as well as the Vanderbilt community knows her. 
right? Because she's been a behind the scenes person, right? She hasn't been out front for a lot of the things that have done. She's been working behind the scenes. So now it'll be important for her to, to sort of get out front and, and, and introduce herself to the faction of people in the Nashville sports community that haven't had a chance to deal with her. And I, I think once they get to know her, they're going to like her that much more, I think. Yeah, I think she'll she'll hit that pretty well. Um, I, think, I know we've got maybe 20 minutes left uh, before you've got to go. Let's... Um, Let's shift the baseball before we get to the mailbag for a minute. We were talking a little bit about the David Price trade to the Dodgers. Uh, David will be, I guess, pretty soon in the twilight of his career. Now gets a pretty good chance to get a ring with the Dodgers, um, provided they keep the trash cans out of the way. And uh, Mookie Betts also coming to town. Your thoughts on that? Well, that's a blockbuster for sure. You know, you've been hearing that for a while. The the Dodgers have been, uh, you know, very hungry for a championship. They've been very close for the last few years, and uh, they were looking to make a big splash. I think they could have done nothing and still had a you know a reasonable shot to win the World Series. But the unique ability uh, to to have the resources and the opportunity to go after guys like Mookie Betts and David Price was one that uh, I guess they couldn't pass up. But how crazy is it to have two guys from the Nashville area involved in the same trade? Um, it's just amazing. It just it's, To me, it illustrates, again, you know, how great baseball has become in our area, you know, not just with the Vanderbilt program, but guys like Mookie Betts who grew up in, and played ball near, nearby. It's just, it's just astonishing to me. So – uh, now you put David Price and Walker Buehler on the same pitching staff. That's that's pretty exciting. Yeah, and just as a sidebar here for a moment, you and I were talking about contracts, and you were kind of lamenting why the Red Sox didn't just lock bets up years ago for cheaper and had a chance. Now, I didn't get into this. I think I did hear that they tried to do that, and Betts was like wanting $100 million more than they were willing to offer. So maybe that's your right, simple but I'm explanation. Right, years ago. Well, yeah. yeah, that that has been reported that that Mookie Betts. <clears throat> well, remember this: he signs the one-year tender, you know, in his last year before he can hit unrestricted free agency. The Red Sox supposedly offered him three hundred million dollars for ten years, the Manny Machado, Bryce Harper kind of neighborhood. And at that point, you know, he's one year away from free agency. He's about to make twenty-seven million dollars this year. And he's better than Bryce Harper, and he's better than Manny Machado. So I can see him thinking, you know, I'm worth more than that. And the Red Sox are, I'm not saying they're financially restricted, but they don't want to go over the luxury tax. And they they know that they, they've got big problems with that if if they go into that stratosphere. So turn back the clock three or four years. I think they missed a huge opportunity to lock Mookie Betts up for a long-term contract that would have been, you know, at a very reasonable cost. I, I just don't understand why they didn't realize they had something as special as Mookie Betts three or four years ago when they could have controlled the cost. They could have signed him to a long-term extension, similar to what the Predators do a lot with, with a lot of their guys. Let's just take what they did with Roman Yossi. They got him to be one of the biggest bargains in hockey for seven years because they, 
they saw something special before he really blossomed. The Red Sox had every opportunity to do that. And for and every year, they just strung it out. They took him to arbitration one year. And, and at that point, the clock was ticking, and Mookie Betts was, was going to be controlling the cards. And so the, I think the Red Sox missed a huge opportunity there. Yeah, and to that, and maybe the answer is as simple enough as it's offered and the contracts aren't signed, but I've always wondered why more teams don't do what the Braves did with Ozzie Albies. They're going to get a bargain on that guy by signing oh, him early. Ronald Acuna is, is, is another one, right? Bingo, Ronald bingo. Acuna is going to become a huge bargain. They locked him up. That's what the Red Sox should have done with Mookie Betts. I, I am stunned. And I, I was saying it at the time. I'm not saying it in retrospect. We used to talk about this all the time on the air. I don't, re- I don't understand why the Red Sox did not see that. And so now they're going to they're going to pay the price. And now Mookie Betts goes into the category. This is the I, I, was, I saw Ken Rosenthal writing about this is Mookie Betts now does put a little pressure on himself because now he becomes the guy that is the twenty seven million dollar man that's playing for the big contract. And there's pressure that, that comes with that for sure, because his new team or the next team past the Dodgers, if they don't sign him long term, are going to expect a lot from him. The fans will expect a lot. But I, I I think Mookie Betts is that special. I think I think he's going to produce no matter where he goes. Yeah, and if you're going to get a guy like that later, the thing you have to do is you have to overpay. You almost know that best-case scenario, you might get the value out of the guy that you signed. But then the market value for a stud, you're going to have to pay the guy $300 million, probably minimum. And I, I'm with you. I just think it makes a lot more sense to do what the Braves did. And, and you and I see the, the Betts thing uh, very much eye-to-eye. Yeah, you, you can get burned, but at the same time, you know, I think if you trust your scouts and you trust your eyeballs, you're, you're going to save money in, in the long term for sure. Now, now we'll see, too, what will David Price look like in the National League? We, we've never seen him in that league where you get to face the pitcher. And a lot of times, you know, hitting in front of that pitcher is a, is a you know, weak hitting catcher because defense is so important. I, you know, I, I think – he has a chance to really flourish in the National League at this stage of his career, and, and the Dodgers are paying half of, of his contract. So the Red Sox are paying the Dodgers to have him pitch for the Dodgers. That, that's, pretty, that's pretty exciting if you're a Dodger fan, I think. Yeah, sweet deal if you can get that. Um, yeah. I'm going to go into the mailbag, which is sponsored by Vanderbilt Fan and independent insurance agent Josh Minton of Brentwood. Do you need an insurance agent who wants to know your unique needs and circumstances and will tailor an insurance plan to fit them? Josh is your guy. Call him 615-933-1979. Email him at josh at hqinsurance.com. Follow him at facebook.com forward slash jdmintonhq. He's my agent. Give him a shot. I think you'll be pleased. Ann Arbor says if the strategic plan is announced and comprised of student-athlete resources and facilities, where the student-athletes spend the bulk of their time, will the plan be a success or a failure? If it's a failure, what's required to make it a success? Well, my question would be, are we ever going to get a clear definition of what the, quote, strategic plan is? I, I, I do. I would love to someday you know, sit down with Malcolm Turner and say, well, you know, give, give me what the plan was. I mean, that, that's the thing that we – we never really got right. As he walks out the door, we kept hearing about a plan. It was hinted at 
We're thinking big. We know all of these concepts, but we never really saw anything. And so I, I'm not, I think, you know, how, how do we know we're not back to, to square one? And as I said before, a lot of these coaches that, that have, have been working their way through this, you know, from, for a good while now, I'm thinking of Jeff McDonald and Tim Corbin, some people that have been there a good while. They've learned to become, and Kevin Stallings would be in this category too. Those guys all learned how to be self-sufficient, right, for their programs. They did a very, they've done a very, very good job. So there's not a whole lot of, that's broken for, for, in, in a lot of areas there because those coaches have done an excellent job learning how to carve out their own niche. And you see with Tim Corbin, he's been able to get the commitment in a kind of unique way, and you see what the results can be. Like the women's tennis program perennially is challenging for, for national championships, and we can go on down the line. But the, the issue is football is such a big animal, right? It's such a huge thing. That's a whole different story. Basketball, I think, is, is not as far away as it might seem. They've had some very tough luck that, that has contributed, at least on the men's side. The women's side are starting to show some, some signs of life here. They, they've taken a step forward here. So I'd like to sort of redefine what is what is the strategic vision, but it does come down to the connection between the Kirkland Hall at the top and the athletic program, the synergy between the two. And I think these coaches are to be commended for what they've been able to do without that. Mr. Vandy says, with the news of yesterday, what has to happen to get fans and alumni any hope moving forward for athletics? Well, I, I think there's a lot of hope when you look at a lot of these programs. It can be done, right? So, so I, I'm not subscribing to no hope. Um, they need a little luck for basketball. They need some guys to stay healthy to start building, the, building back the foundation there. Um, but what has to happen, you know, I think you got to put a good product together. I, I think there has to be investment. The fans, the fundraising, I think, will come if there's a belief. And Malcolm Turner did say this. You know, there, there's a lot of different things that have been said, but I think one thing that is true is you have to have you have to have something that's worth investing in. You can sit around and go ask for people for money. I need money to do this or this, but there needs to be maybe some spending money to make money. In other words, you might have to go into the red financially. I know, I know there's a concern a lot of times from Kirkland Hall, of boy, the athletic program eats up a lot of money. But if you invest in the programs, eventually people will invest back. I think you will get that return on investment, but it takes some money up front. I think that's where I would start. I wouldn't worry too much about, hey, we've got to get the fans in the stands and all that stuff. That, that's important. But you can't really do that until you get the product the way you want it. By the way, a little sort of breaking news as we do the podcast, and uh, Donovan Kaufman has stuck with his Vanderbilt commitment will be signing with Vandy Willie. Okay, very nice. Yeah, one of the one of the better players in the class. So, um, last one I think from Bighorn Sheep. We need to talk something positive with Vanderbilt. They just had the 93 reunion for the Hoops team. You played with most of those guys and coaches. Talk about that team, and did you get a chance to meet them, or were you on the road with the Predators? 
I had breakfast with Coach Fogler, uh, Coach Rick Callahan, Mike Petroni, and uh, my teammate Kevin Anglin. I, I 1993, that was my senior year. I chose to to just concentrate on baseball, and of course, I missed out on all the fun. The team wins the SEC championship in the regular season, so. Those are some of my closest friends. I did get a chance. The Predators had a game that night at home, but I so I didn't get to see uh, the ceremony at Memorial. But uh, so I had breakfast with some of the guys and then uh, circled back and met some of them after the game. And I did get a chance to go up to Memorial Gym and and uh, and see the the after party or, or whatever you want to call it up in the Admirals Club. And I got a chance to talk to Coach Stackhouse for a couple minutes. It was really special to see all those guys. I, I do believe you could argue that that is the best Vanderbilt basketball team on the men's side uh, of all time. I, I would, I think people probably who are a little bit younger don't realize how good that team was. They, they don't have any NBA players. You know, you can't sit there and look up in the Raptors and say, well, this guy went on and played in the NBA for 10 years. They didn't have those guys, but they had an unbelievable ability to carve up opponents by by ball movement, player movement, screens, cuts, and they just broke people down. Um, and, and I think it brings up a really interesting thing. I, I loved the college game back then, the variety of, you know, you had pressing teams, you had up-tempo teams, then you had teams like Princeton that would slow it down. The 45-second shot clock, I thought, was one of the keys uh, to that. And because you had the 45-second shot clock, Vanderbilt, they took their time to – that particular team was so good at breaking down the defense. But by the end of the game, it's not like they won 50-48. to 48. That team averaged over 80 points per game. So it was very entertaining to watch. And this was, of course, in the era, too, before players started leaving after one year. Right? This was before the one-and-dones, and it was before even some of the best players left to start going out of high school, which started happening a couple years later with, with Kevin Garnett and then Kobe Bryant and LeBron James. So you had the best basketball players playing college basketball, and that Vanderbilt team went 28-6, and 14-2 in the league, and one of the games they lost should have been a win because Stacey Poole traveled on a buzzer beater down in Gainesville where, uh, where he absolutely – got away with one and hit a shot at the buzzer. Otherwise that team would have been 15 and one. That team was about as much fun to watch as any team I've ever seen in college basketball. I'm thinking of the things that it lacked. And at first I started to say, well, there weren't a lot of high risers in that group. But then I think back to Bruce Elder and Dan Hall had some pretty monster dunks at times. Ronnie McMahon could throw a few down. I mean, they did really have a rim protector, but other than that, uh, that group was pretty special. I think they were underrated athletically when you get down to it. You're right. They didn't, they wouldn't have, you know, it was hardly a five slam a jamma kind of thing where, where you would look at the highlights and have five value dunks. But artistically, as you said, they were extremely fun to watch because they played so well together. And I, I think, too, they were versatile. If they wanted to go with a small lineup, for you mentioned Bruce Elder. You know, he started at the four spot at 6'5", right? And so he would create a lot of matchup problems. And so, you, and so he was more of a winger who was stretched to play four, but he could guard another team's four-man. He was that versatile. But if you wanted to go bigger, you had guys like Dan Hall coming off the bench. 
If you wanted to have a shot blocker in the game, you could go with Chris Woods, who was uh, an outstanding post defender shot blocker. Uh, Chris Lawson was not a shot blocker, but he was an excellent defender, passer, you know, crafty player, and, and had a lot of bulk in the middle. So they could go big or go small and beat you almost any, any way that you wanted to play. The only thing that gave them trouble that whole year, unfortunately, uh, were teams that could play a really good zone. And, and the, the only teams that beat them, really, besides Kentucky beat them at Rupp that year, um, were teams that played great zone. And that included Temple, who beat them in the Sweet 16. That was, to me, in retrospect, like the worst matchup they could have had in the Sweet 16 because they played an active zone, and a team that had underrated talent at the time. Temple had three NBA players uh, who played for a long time in the NBA, uh, that, but nobody really knew how good they were at the time. Yeah, that matchup zone, I think, is what they threw at Vandy in the Sweet 16, and, and just really, Temple did such a great job of making that team just not look like that team that night they played, I guess is the best way to put it. Yeah, yeah, they were searching – uh, for the right formula offensively throughout the night. And, and they started catching it late. They had a good start and a good finish, as I remember. But the middle 20, 25 minutes was a struggle offensively. And you got to give John Cheney credit. He did it to a lot of teams over a long period of time at Temple. And uh, so that was really unfortunate. But still an incredibly special year when, when you look at uh, what that team did. Take a look at the scores. You know, most of the nights, especially at Memorial gym, the games weren't even close. You know, they, they won easily. It's not like they, you know, they barely squeaked by in overtime a few times. It happened a couple of times, but they, they dominated for the most part. Willie, thanks so much for joining us. I know you've got hockey games coming up. You've got your show to promote and you've got a meeting to go to in a minute. So I want to give you the floor to promote any work that you're involved with at the moment. All right. Well, it's great to talk to you, Chris. And this, this is obviously a big time for Vanderbilt. I would just say, you know, hang in there. Nothing is as bad as it seems. So hang tough. Maybe this is, everything happens for a reason here. And, uh, and I think this will be really exciting to see what Kansas story Lee can do, uh, to emerge, hopefully as a great leader, as a person, I think she's outstanding. And I think she can, she can really make the most of this opportunity here. If, if people give her a little chance and, and she, she builds a good team around her, which I think she's already got some good people. I'm up in Canada. Uh, Predators are on a, a very important four-game road trip against teams that they're trying to battle with in the, in the playoff standings. Um, so Fox Sports Tennessee, our next telecast is tomorrow night. That's Thursday night in Calgary against the Flames. And, of course, uh, uh, Saturday night they'll be heading to Edmonton and then on to Vancouver. So four crazy Canadian cities. The weather's, yeah, it's a little bit cold up here, but we'll be back uh, soon enough. And uh, I'll be talking to everybody on uh, 102.5 The Game from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. weekdays. little snow and ice, eh? Uh, yep, you got it. That's winter <laughs> hey, in Canada. That's right. That's how they roll. Hey, Willie, thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next week. All right. Thanks, Chris. I'm Chris Lee, host of the Vandy Sports Podcast. He's Willie Donick. Thanks for listening today. We'll have more dropping later this week. Thank you.